some dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. Yeah, I saw that bird pick a young deer off the road and fly away. And uh, it was just about getting dark, and we started panicking, running down the bridge, not really having any clue of storing rocks in our vicinity, good-sized rocks. And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 357 out of my backpack and look back, and that's when I thought I saw one. Along with me is Shane Hardcore Corson. We are uh, welcome to Monster X Radio this Sunday evening. Today we are going to be talking with uh, Mr. Todd Neese, uh, founder, co-founder of the American Primate Conservancy and uh, expedition lead and organizer of the recently completed Operation Sea Monkey. And we'll have a couple of uh, special guests that will be joining us along the way. Hey, Shane Corson, how are you, buddy? Doing well, Gunner. Doing well. Glad to be here as usual. And uh, looking forward to, uh, while well, you were a part of, of this uh, adventure, this expedition, and uh, I know we've talked briefly uh, on your experience and whatnot, but I'm looking forward to, to listening to what you have to say, as well as uh, the others that took part in on this uh, pretty unique uh, trip. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, uh, adventure to say the least. Um, so we'll talk more about what uh, happened along the way. But uh, I, I I thought it was an uh, uh, interesting premise, um, and we had a great uh, First Nations gentleman who, who shared um, his experiences along the way, and we'll talk more about that when we bring Todd on. But, uh, yeah, it, it was a good... I, you know, it's always fun to go out with uh, and meet people that you you don't know that well. Um, I got to hang out with Thomas Steenberg, which I know um, Julie uh, Wrench was quite jealous of. But uh, we did send a uh, um, we did send a uh, video to Julie from Thomas, so <laughs> that, that was pretty uh, yeah. fun. Yeah. So um, and then of course I. I, I've known Todd Neese for quite a while, and uh, um, also um, Thomas Seawood was was our First Nations guide in the area, and uh, great guy, um, 
fascinating storyteller, uh, and and really when we get into it, it uh, you'll see why it, it, the premise uh, was more than you know just uh, uh, your usual outing to go look for big. But people, you know, and and I've talked about this uh, is we focus on one particular location, you know. So why do you you take off going? Uh, uh, looking in, a, in an area you're not familiar with, and and part of it for me is is sharing ideas and stuff with with other people, that other researchers, and uh, and uh, getting feedback and and hearing different viewpoints and stuff. So it was a lot of fun. Um, we also had uh, Ron Moorhead was on board, and uh, as well as Victoria, quote unquote Victor. And and her dad Ron Williams, uh, Victoria is is uh, was our second camera person, and uh, Darren O'Brien was uh, our first camera person who is a, a, a childhood friend of of Todd. So, and it was great. All the I mean, we all got along great for the most part. You know, everybody came back, so nobody got thrown off the boat, and uh, it, it was a good time. So, well, speaking of getting thrown off the boat, you know, it's. I always find that uh, you know you you uh, you maybe collaborate with researchers or people uh, that find this thing interesting and, and whatnot, but it's a whole nother, I would imagine, a whole nother uh, place <laughs> to be trapped. I mean, basically on a boat, kind of trapped in close quarters. I would imagine you learn a lot about people, uh, you know, other than just over the internet or even on a, you know, a woodsy camping uh, expedition that it, it's totally different. I would imagine. Oh yeah. It's, I mean, it, it it's always an orient. There's an orientation of when you go into a new area, you know, if you're not familiar with the surroundings and, and uh, I'm, I'm of the opinion that, that if you're dealing with that the wildlife in the area has to get kind of used to you as well. And I'm sure that that includes, that includes uh, our hairy bipedal friend. I think that they have an awareness after a while, if you've been in their area of who you are and I mean, my dog knows who I am. So I, I'm pretty sure they're no offense to Don Julio, but uh, I'm sure they're at least as smart, probably smarter than uh, my dog. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, one could say that, you know, uh, there have been certain individuals, uh, um, you know, the grizzly man um, who got a little bit too close. Uh, so you got to be careful what yeah. you wish for. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I was interested in seeing the local wildlife and uh, um, it and we got to see some. So, um, you know, we had we saw porpoises and we saw whales and. And uh, we saw some land animals, which we'll get into, I'm sure, when we we're, uh, when we talk to our guests today. So um, it's it's uh, it was an exciting trip, and uh, I'd like to bring uh, Todd on to to chat with us. So, Mr. Nice, how are you this evening? I'm good, Gunner. Thanks for having me on. Hey. Oh, you betcha. Our pleasure. So. Tell us a little bit about your premise, uh, how this came to be, that uh, Operation Sea Monkey, for lack of a better name, came to be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 
actually, uh, this has been a, a concept that I've uh, been toying with for quite some time. In fact, since the time uh, Diane and I, uh, Diane Stock and my wife, purchased uh, our own boat, and I'd always pondered, you know, how can we use this as a research vessel in furthering our, our Bigfoot research? And, you know, as I kind of developed the idea, it was, you know, there's um, just a vast amount of wilderness up off the British Columbian shoreline, uh, just countless inlets and, and as you uh, found out, numerous islands that are completely uninhabited, at least by humans. And uh, uh, so my plan uh, through the Conservancy was that once I retire from the Army here in a little over two years, was that we were going to take our boat up there and do do just that using uh, scopes and, and a drone to travel through these areas and look for evidence of Bigfoot. Uh, but again, it wasn't something we were really <clears throat> prepared to do as quickly as it as it came together. But it did, and, uh, and it was it was an epic trip. It, that uh, that part of it, uh, this coming together as quickly as it was, was due in part by a visit that was paid to us here at our cabin up on Mount Hood by Tom Seawood and his lady friend Peggy. Uh, Tom is a First Nations Canadian uh, Indian of the Kwakwakiwak uh, tribe. And he, you know, as I told him about this this future plan I had, he says, why wait? I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, first of all, now is the perfect time to go. This, the, the end of September, first part of October is when my people access these beaches at low tide on all these islands and collect cockles and uh, and clams and Bigfoot do the same thing. Uh, in fact, there's a, a beach up in that area known as Cockle Throw Beach. And it was named that because the, uh, the First Nations people, when they go out to collect on that particular beach, they take the first cockles and mussels that they uh, and, and clams that they come into and toss them up into the tree line just to, to keep the Bigfoot at bay. Uh, and that's a, that's a beach that's marked that way on the map. And so he said, you know, second of all, I've got connections up there. I know people that have boats. Um, I know people that have places that we can stay if need be. And I can make those arrangements if you can put together a team. I'm like, wow, you know, we got like, what, we're talking three weeks. But I'll see what we can do. <laughs> right. and, I mean, it was a miracle that we pulled off what we did in the short time that we did. But um, thanks to you and, and Ron Moorhead, Thomas Steenberg, Tom Seawood, Darren, we were able to uh, put together a really, I think, a, a dream team of researchers all coming from different backgrounds, having different aspects of the research. And Darren really uh, playing the part of a skeptic because, you know, he was still on the fence about whether or not these things exist. And I think it was healthy to have that, that perspective along as well. But Darren joined us because of his expertise in videography and the fact that we really uh, 
decided it would be best that we make a documentary of this of this adventure and uh anyway the the second part of that for me was the financing I'm like holy smokes this is this is going to cost some money and as we started doing the math and the price tag kept going up I'm like okay if this is meant to be um, the money will come and and it started out with a, a, a generous five hundred uh, dollar donation from David Bacara from the uh, uh, Bigfoot Museum out in in Georgia, and from there I I thought okay there's there's a good sign so I said let's uh, let's do a GoFundMe campaign I, I I've never done one but I thought you know what I've I've got some friends out there and. and uh, uh, people that that believe in what we're doing and we'll give it a shot. And within three weeks, we uh, were able to raise over five thousand dollars for the trip. So it it just uh, it was a perfect storm. It came together, and uh, we were very fortunate to, that that did, and grateful that you came along. Well, one of the things, uh, and it's you know it's come up. You, you always got people that that question. Um, it seems particularly in Bigfooting uh, when anybody raises funds uh, and doesn't pay for it strictly out of their own pocket. Um, and I, I've always said one of the challenges in, in this research is is that 99.9% of, of all Bigfoot research is, is self-funded, which, you know, basically means there there are no um, huge benefactors. There's um, Wally Hersom that is has uh, pitched in at different times for different organizations. But, in, you know, this is most of Bigfoot research gets done on people's own time, which is one of the the things that I think that uh, makes it more challenging. And, oh, absolutely. Um, how, you know, absolutely. So what what do you say to people that, that uh, say, oh, well, you know, you sh- if you want to do that, you should do it on your own dime? Well, um, we have been doing it on, on our own dime for quite some time, 20, 23 years, in fact, for me. And uh, it, it's it, like any hobby, if you will, it's, it's not cheap, especially when we're bringing to bear some of the equipment that that doesn't come with a tiny price tag. Right. Um, in this case, I, I think it was a little unique in that uh, I was I was absolutely – amazed at the response to the campaign and the fact that so many researchers and and organizations, uh, too many to to even list at this point, but but, um, all came together. They they put aside their, uh, any any sense of, of competition, if you will, because we know that there's a lot of that involved out there, a lot of politics and whatnot. Everybody wants to be that person that 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 you know gets the holy grail and, and proves the existence of these things. But I was I was just really really blown away at uh, all the cooperation and very touched, um, you know. And and I'd like to see more of that. I'm hoping maybe we we set a bit of a standard here, and that uh, I can tell you when it. Uh, if something like this comes up in the future, I'm I'm more than willing to to uh, contribute to it to to help other 
organizations. Uh, if I feel what well, they're doing is things, legitimate. Yeah. Well, and that's not only did um, Operation Sea Monkey get financial contributions, um, several individuals and, and organizations also contributed equipment on loaned their equipment to the cause. So um, that was, right. I thought that was like fantastic. You know, the OP, Chris Spencer, uh, though, uh, and I know that Squatchachusetts um, had intended to. It, unfortunately, there were some logistical problems with getting the equipment here. And it, like you said, all this was done in, in a really compressed time frame um, from the, the organization of it to the the raising the finance. And uh, um, it, it uh, came together uh, really well considering, you know, uh, and it, for me it was a, a, a fantastic personal experience just um, getting to to hang out with everybody and and uh, and go out and into this area and get an idea of what uh, what it looked like and um, and to hear uh, to me Thomas um, Seawood is a wealth of knowledge and we talked oh about God, this yeah. is that uh, he he basically is someone who lived in this area and not out in these islands specifically for uh, about 25 years that he lived on, uh, on village Island um, and, and had interactions. Right. And uh, which uh, he had, had a a lot of interaction. Um, Several had sightings out there, had, uh, um, other interactions and stuff out in in the area that we were. So it wasn't. Oh just yeah, based I was on just a, going over. I remember when we uh, when we first uh, got underway that Tom uh, rolled out a chart of the area that we were going into the, the Broughton Archipelago, and um, he you know he took out that red marker and he began to put dots on the map in the very area we were heading this area that he knew so well. Um, and by final count, I counted over two dozen dots on that map that represented encounters that he personally knew of. And and in many cases, he went into a great deal about each of these encounters. He, in, in several instances, he knew the eyewitnesses. And that's just the ones that he knows about. Um I mean, when he got done, it just, I mean, it was just uh, an amazing amount of sightings in those areas. And since we've been back, uh, I'm not sure I've shared this, but I've got in contact with another First Nations uh, uh, person up there who has told me even more uh, sightings, and, and some of them are absolutely amazing. I mean, the in one particular instance, uh, there were 30 villagers out on the beach collecting clams and cockles when three, uh, presumably a family of these things, three Sasquatch just literally came out and and, and joined them on the beach. Um, and that's 30 eyewitnesses. And this story has never been told. And it just makes you wonder how many more encounters out there. You've you got to appreciate the fact that these uh, First Nations people are, are very secretive. They're, I mean, they're, they, 
it takes a while to build trust with them and and uh you know um they don't want to be you know parade of uh visitors coming from outside and 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 uh inundating their their islands but uh, uh we were just very fortunate that uh, Tom and a few others opened up to us and, and shared some things. And, and Tom made this, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, without his uh, historical perspective of of the islands and their culture and, and their interactions with Bigfoot, it would not have been near the same. Yeah, Todd, you know, well, no, it's, very a- interesting. it's very interesting you mention, you know, uh, you know the, like the Native Americans in, in these areas because when when they do – and it's very rare go public with uh, an encounter they've had or stories. It usually makes the news. Uh, you know, you, you know, it's all over the place and whatnot because it is rare. But it's not to say that they, they're not. Uh, there's not a lot of these stories or encounters uh, that happen quite frequently. Just that they're very tight-lipped about it and they don't want the publicity. You know, and and, and that's uh, what mm-hmm. make, makes this sort of endeavor, uh, Operation Sea Monkey, mm-hmm. pretty pretty unique. Is that you're interacting and working with natives and, and and hearing stuff that it's you know it's not going to be made public unless or even heard unless you you engage them and and enter their world. Well, that's true. Is that that uh, um, Thomas talked about? You know, he had to ask permission from from his elders. Um, you know, you know for us to go out there and and they're very protective and have very strong beliefs about uh the interactions between their people and and the Sasquatch. I mean that's it's not, you know, it's they have a long history in this area of of uh of interaction and uh it's they he was talking about how when they, you know, guys will go uh, out to uh collect cockles and and if they hear uh vocalizations and and shows of aggression or display they move on they it's basically the sasquatch telling them um this is our beach right now my family's here you know you go somewhere else and um for the most part that's to me it sounds like they that that's what they do they go somewhere else when when they have that um they get that message. So well, that's that's the amazing thing about the the archipelago itself is that uh, it's so vast, and there are so many islands and so much real estate to go around. That you know, it's no big deal, you know, to find another beach because that land up there is so wealthy, if you will, rich with with. Uh, Seafood. I mean, we 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 witnessed firsthand, and and Tom told me before we ever went out there. He said, you know, this time of year there is more protein per square meter than anywhere in the world. And he and he set out to prove it, and he did so in spades. I mean, that do you remember that one day he went to the island with oh, yeah. Victoria, and took a little kind of a pitchfork rake thing out there, came back within thirty minutes with. I would say, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens of clams, mm-hmm. and uh, and and I said, "Wow, where'd you get this?" And he said, "In about a about a three foot square patch that I dug on the beach." 
three foot square and he had nearly a hundred clams. I mean, I ate clams like I didn't eat anymore. I mean, the seafood on that trip was just amazing. <laughs> yeah, this boat came. Uh, the boat came equipped with fishing gear as well as crab traps and, and prawn traps. And as promised by Tom before we even left, he said, "You're going to eat more fresh seafood than you can even handle." And and uh, he came through. I mean. <laughs> Oh my God! Prawns and I mean fresh prawns, fresh crab, fresh fish, fresh clam—you uh, name it. Um, and and it was all really just to kind of show you the banquet of food that's available to any animal out there, Bigfoot or otherwise. And it's it's free for the taking. And that's one of the the um, draws of the area at this time of year was the the tides change so that that uh, the clams, particularly cockles, are are edible, um, and and um, Thomas shared his uh, uh, ideas, his theories of what how he thinks the movement, based on um, basically being living in uh, this area uh, for a good part of his life, uh, and and observing having an interest in in the uh Sasquatch and and history of reports. So he kinda has a th- working theory of, of how he thinks they move at what times of year that they are actually swimming between islands. Um and it's interesting this while we were up there um just before we went to Alert Bay, they had had a couple of grizzly cups swim into Alert Bay, which is something that's unusual. Never happened before, actually, from what I was told, that they just had, had not seen that. But not only grizzly, they they even they claim that the cougar and and deer and other large mammals swim between these islands. And as you know, as you saw, a lot of these islands. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's hard to describe to your listeners, but some of these islands are the size of a football field. Other ones are much larger, but they're scattered all over the place. And, and the straits, if you will, the between them in some cases is just literally, you know, a few hundred yards. And for them to swim from Island to Island to Island, I mean, they could literally go from the mainland of British Columbia all the way to Vancouver Island, just hop squatch, hop squatch, hop squatch. <laughs> I did not say that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but jumping from island to island to island and, and they do. And so uh, uh, it's, it's very uh, conceivable. That's, that's what's going on. I know Tom had spoke about how they stay, you know, in the, in the hotter months, uh, in the high uh, mountainous area, both on Vancouver Island uh, as well as the mainland. And it's just this time of year that they come down from the highlands as, as winter starts to set in and the clam beds become uh, detoxified, I guess. I mean, during the summer, I guess there's red tide and you get some bats and then the clams and they're not good to eat. But by this kind of change of seasons is what brings on the, the great clam tides and and uh, this this amazing um, seafood bounty and and they know about it they've been they've known about it for generations 
And uh, so it's just a natural uh, cycle that they, and obviously the grizzly and, and, and other animals, take advantage of it. No, it's, and it was, I was impressed by um, the bounty of, of uh, protein in the area. He said, um, Thomas went out that one morning and came back with, because like, and the whole idea was to demonstrate the, the uh, bountiful amount of, of protein that was that's in the area. And like you said, there is so um, the islands. Uh, there's so many islands, and and like you said, they could swim very uh, easily. There was places I could swim from an island to another island. I was island just gonna say that uh, a human yeah. could do that. Uh, you know, somebody in decent shape could could cross those channels just as well. Right. It looks like uh, we have another one of our Operation uh, Sea Monkey members uh, with us today, Mr. Ron Moorhead. Is that you, Ron? Yes. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Hey, Ron. Hi, Todd. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having us. Very thorough. So, Ron... Give us give us your your uh, take on on Operation Sea Monkey and and uh, what what you thought of the results and the idea and et cetera. Well, it was great. Uh, biggest thing is we found out more about these islands and just the habitats that's on it. Probably all the sightings been going on and the interest and I applaud Tom again, like like you guys have about uh, his knowledge of this area. And basically his motives, too, for, for actually the, the tribal members, really, he had really talked them into allowing him to do this because they're really trying to, I think, preserve the logging industry because they're trying to move in up there. And their biggest issue is they can get Sasquatch identified. Well, they can probably uh, stop the logging, just, just tearing up some of those places. And I really applaud his motive for that. He was a great, great guy. He knows so much about that area and the history and all that. But the islands themselves are, I had no idea. You know, I've flown, I'm a pilot, and I've flown into Alaska a lot over those islands. But to see them on this perspective was just great. And to understand more about them and to be with the people I was with was just great. There. <laughs> can you hear me? Can you hear me now? <laughs> I can hear you now, Ron. <laughs> well, yeah, it was. Uh, so... <laughs> We had um, one experience uh, on one particular island where we went to, uh, um, there was a river inlet there, and uh, we were uh, uh, going to to have dinner on the beach there, and uh, Tom Seawood took us, took one group to the beach, dropped them off, and then came back and and got me and dropped me off, and then we were... uh, there was a, actually a little jetty there, and uh, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> so yeah, we so, got to talk um, about that. Was probably the most exciting it, thing on the trip. <laughs> I mean, as far as activity end, goes, yeah, it, it we did got, you, end up being quite exciting. So, Todd, well, Todd tell us a little bit. No, I. So, so we're on the beach for a little bit, and we're we're finding grizzly tracks, and and Thomas Steenberg actually saw wolf tracks. Um, and we're, the idea was to uh, deploy a couple of game cams uh, and uh, a seismic sensor that, that Todd brought with us. 
And uh, the exciting thing that happened was at, at one point, um, uh, Thomas gets on, comes on the uh, radio and says, um, there's a, a black bear and it, it's coming your way. We can see it. You know, okay. It's no black bears, you know, are kind of weenies um, when it comes to, I mean, you can scare them away for fairly easily. So we weren't too concerned about it. We were going on about what we were doing. And I had the radio and at one point they came back on and said, well, you know, it's kind of the fair update. Uh, it's by the way, it's not a black bear. It's actually a grizzly and it's coming your way. So, so, uh, okay. And we called them back a little bit later to see what, you know, like, where's this bear at now? And, uh, I guess Thomas Seawood and, and, and Victoria had got in a boat to go get video of it. <laughs> and they came back and said, uh, uh, we're on radio silence. We're videotaping the bear. To, I, think, <laughs> I, I know that my jaw dropped. I don't know about, but, yeah. uh, yeah. Well, and just, it was a, and was just a to, uh, if I if I could, Gunner, just to give your listening audience maybe a visual of what what was going on, where we're at. Again, this we're going in on low tides, so uh, so tides out, and we specifically are. This was our last anchorage, and we I'd asked, hey, is there a, an island that has a salmon stream? Uh, coming off of it into the ocean, and he said, I know this one. We're going to go there, and we'll do that as our last stop. And so this jetty that the gunner's talking about was basically our injection and... and um, um, extraction. Our extraction. <laughs> Thank you. And, and, and it just was a, a point of rocks that kind of came out, not very far, but enough that the Zodiac could get in and drop us off and, and pick us up without hitting bottom. And so we're on the, let's just for the sake of argument, say the north side of the jetty. The jetty is maybe six, eight feet tall at the most. But we're down on this sandbar, this sand flat, uh, between the jetty and the river itself. And so we're like standing out in the, it's picture standing out in the middle of a football field, uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, naked. Because you've got this. Wait a minute! Nobody big, was naked. Well, no, no. What I'm saying is how you—it's kind of how you felt. Because I mean, it's like you got this dinosaur lumbering <laughs> on its way to the jetty. We know this. It's on the beach. It's on the other side. But the jetty's just tall enough that we can't see over the top of it. Right. And so, <laughs> so then Captain Williams gets on the phone. If you recall, he goes. He goes, oh yeah, no. Let me let me do this because I can do Ron's voice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, how's it going? So he's like, he's like, who's got the gun? Uh, he said, Todd. And he goes, you might want to load it. Like, oh crap. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Up, up to that point, yeah, yeah. I want to let, let me. I'll, I'll do the yeah. <laughs> and that was yeah, you need to do Ron's so, voice. So, yeah. yeah, no, I'll do I'll, Yeah, because well, I was watching the radio. Yeah, Ron, by the way, was watching from the safety of the boat. Oh, I mean, yeah, Grizzly uh, can't swim, so he. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, Ron, so I actually had the radio, and Ron 
the captain of the boat at one point gets on and says, and who is this? And he has, you know, the Canadian, he's got a fairly Canadian accent. I said, this is Gunner. He said, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. He says, who's got the, who has the shotgun? And I said, Todd, you, you probably want to go ahead and load it. And at that, at that point, I was like, you know, if you're, if you're a DEF CON, uh, you moved up to DEF CON a couple of steps. So, and it, you know, you're, I, I was not just watching the, uh, the, uh, Jetty area, expecting this this giant Todd refers to a dinosaur come our direction, and not knowing what you know how it would react when we uh, with four of us on the beach there, and uh, but also watching our back because you know there's a river and there's grizzly tracks going up this river that um, we had hoped to go up the river and look for uh, bigfoot tracks, Sasquatch tracks as they're known in in Canada. But uh, that, was kind that, of a that plan, yeah, that, that that plan kind of got waylaid when uh, we were uh, dealing with uh, grizzly coming in our direction. So, Todd, tell us a little the, bit about your experience with the shotgun. <laughs> so, 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 well, well, first thing is you you let me know what Captain Williams said. He said, "Yes, you know, you might want to load the shotgun," and I'm thinking, "Loaded? I thought it was loaded." So. <laughs> Uh, sure enough, I open the breach, and there's no shotgun shells in the gun. So uh, I remember Tom had given me this pouch, this zippered pouch that had shotgun shells. I assumed they were extras, and uh, soon expected. And so I, I unzipped the pouch. I'm, I'm, I'm going to load this shotgun faster than I've ever loaded a shotgun in my life, and was a little. Um, uh, surprised to, to note that all these shotgun shells are covered with rust. Uh, obviously, being exposed to salt water for a long time, but I'm pulling out these shells, going, "Okay, which is the least rusty one?" And and I grabbed one and I tried to I would just put it directly in into the barrel, uh, into the breech, and I got it. Oh, probably three quarters of the way in before it just stuck because of the rust that, that had built up on it. And I tried once to ram the, the receiver forward to, to get it to seat and it was not locking. And at which point I just grabbed the rest of the shells and started jamming them into the, into the magazine tube. And I'm like, it's jammed, it's jammed, it's jammed. And you guys are like, what? And meanwhile, we, again, we've got this, this grizzly heading our direction. And those guys on radio silence because they're doing some National Geographic special we weren't a part of. <laughs> and and uh, not caring to say, not taking five seconds to say, it's 100 feet, it's, it's 200 feet, it's 50 feet from the jetty. Uh, right. Anyway, so I, I finally, uh, I, I jammed that receiver as hard as I could and got that, that shell to seat. But, again, my thought is, okay, I could probably get this one to fire, but will the extractor be able to pull that shell out of the chamber and reload? Uh, I don't know. So I pretty much decided at that point there were not going to be uh, any warning shots. Uh, if I was going to pull the trigger, it was going to be uh, that one shot and hopefully uh, effective. But uh, thank God we, we didn't need to, to fire it off. And at, at one point, around the the front of the jetty came Thomas Seawood in 
in one of the zodiacs, um, and it it kind of was like like the cavalry arriving from you know a John Wayne movie. So, uh, but he we never did end up seeing the grizzly. It they were able to scare it back it back to go in the woods. The funny thing is, initially when they thought it was a black bear, they yelled at it and it went into the woods and they started to go back to what they were doing on the boat and then then it came right back out. So it was like. Uh, that's when it became uh, DEFCON 1. Um, it was like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, it's not a black bear. It's it's a grizzly bear, and it's and it's heading your direction. So, well, and let's, we were, not forget what, what, let's not forget what Tom was doing. Tom had, was staying offshore. He had visual-like contact with the bear. He was slapping his hand against the, the steering console, making loud noises, and talking to the bear in his Kwakwakiwak language, uh, and to where I, I would later find out after speaking with him that what he was saying is, Mr. Bear, we're here, we're going to leave, we just, we've just come to uh, get some things and we'll be gone, uh, and um, please don't come after us, we don't want to hurt you, but if you come toward us, we will kill you. I'm like, Tom... Are you serious? You're threatening the bear in Kwakwaki Walk <laughs> You know, you're, you thanks, right? So, but we knew that he had eyesight. So we had sight of him, sight of the right. bear, but we had no idea where the bear was. So, but anyway, yeah, um, yeah fun time. And, and, and the the um, ground there was not conducive to making a quick getaway. Um, it was very no. muddy, and as Ron found out the next morning, um, <laughs> it was quick, quick, sand, sandy-like mud. And uh, we had, you know, we we considered the the option of being able to cross the river to get to the other side of, you know. Um, fortunately, none of that. Uh, we start. We made the decision. The uh, four of us. Darren was with us as well, and we walked in the direction of the bear uh, yelling. And, and I had a, a air horn that I pl- I pressed a few times. And, uh, of course, Thomas Steenberg uh, chose the appropriate song to sing of uh, Bear Necessities from the Jungle Book. So we kept it, <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, kept it light. I mean, it was, you know, everybody handled it pretty well considering the circumstances. And uh, everybody uh, came back to, you know, we joke about uh, you joke about being out in the woods with your friends, and and uh, you know you don't have to be faster than than whatever's chasing. You just have to be faster than your friends. And and I made the the observation that at one point it wasn't it wasn't going to be a running race. It was going to be a swimming race because uh, so of course I don't know if I want to uh, out try and out swim a grizzly either. So, uh, but we had, it was it was that was. Uh, Adrenaline raising, to be sure. So, well, next morning, uh, next morning when I got to be on the extraction team of getting the cameras and getting the ground sensors, I got stuck in the mud. So I was uh, definitely bear bait sitting there in low tide. And uh, how come you guys didn't go with me on that one anyway? Uh, I think we we were still yeah we we drew some straws. <laughs> got some good pictures that night, but I thought I never was going to get out of the mud. I was in uh, about a, over a foot deep and my uh, and uh, stuff, and uh, just standing there right in the middle of nowhere. Uh, 
Anyway, it's a little got, disconcerting. Got, yeah, some, got some good mm-hmm. pictures. Got some good pictures, but uh, yeah, it had me wondering. Uh, just, you know, yeah, so still there's more than one. Well, yeah, there. let's talk. Yeah, there was. I was just going to say next, that um, when we did get the cameras back, um, not surprisingly, within you know, based on the the timestamp, about within two hours of our um, evacuating the island. Uh, we, again, we had set up two cameras. Cameras were uh, not only located by the grizzlies, we had another set of grizzlies, a mother and a cub, uh, as well as uh, ultimately a wolf, uh, really within two hours of the time we left. I mean, just amazing. Um, that got all, they were on camera um, with the, uh, the cub apparently tearing down one of the cameras and chewing the plastic uh, 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 buckles. connectors, buckles, if you yeah. will, yeah, that we used to <laughs> attach to the tree. So they they messed with both of our cameras. They spotted. I think it's kind of important to note that you know animals do see things that weren't there yesterday that aren't natural, and and in, in this case they. They investigated them and even played with them. So, uh, but we got some great footage uh, of that anyway. Yeah, and that was, um, I can't remember. I think it was Darren that said, well, the notice the straps were were missing the buckles and just thought that's the way they had been put up. And it was, and brought it to your attention, Todd. I said, no, there was, there was clips on there. And then when we were Speaking stopped Darren, watching. Is he with us? Um, I think that he has. I bet he's uh, right here. Hello, Aaron O'Brien. Are you here, Gunnar Monson? Yes, I'm here. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well, Gunnar. How are you? Good, good, good. Thank you for uh, joining us today on Monster X. We've also got uh, Mr. Todd Neese and Mr. Ron Moorhead, as well as Shane Corson here. So, Hi, Darren, tell. So you Brent, you came on board. You've known Todd for a long time. I'm I'm sorry to say and uh you uh, agreed, uh, still agreed even knowing Todd agreed to go on this uh adventure as the filmographer. And uh tell us a little bit about your background and and what what uh you know, what what uh caused you to accept this this offer to go into this interesting uh, endeavor. Well, I've I've known Todd since first grade. We were in the same first grade class together, so I think we were probably in the same class through second or third grade. Anyway, uh, we got back in touch in our early twenties, and so we've been we've been close uh, ever since. And um, I remember back in 1993, he called me uh, at my office. And we went through our normal uh, BS on the phone, opening the conversation. And then all of a sudden he said, well, I, uh, I saw Bigfoot. And uh, I was silent. And then he said, well, actually, I, I saw three. And I said, uh, oh, so you saw Big Feet. And silence again was met with, uh, that's not funny. And at that moment, I knew that he was dead serious and that he had seen three Bigfoot. So when he called the uh, to invite me to come along and document the trip. Well, I've produced television shows and videos and commercials for, for decades. 
I couldn't help but say, yeah, I'd, I'd love to come along and, and be part of it. So you were probably one of the first people that he contacted when he had his initial encounter. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, but it was, uh, I think it was within a few days and it was pretty darn fresh. So um, he was, uh, I, I, I kind of sensed that he was going out on a, uh, somewhat of a limb, even talking about it at the time. So uh, I, I was, um, I was, you know, honored to receive the call and the information. And from that point forward, uh, I, I believe him. You'd have to, listeners, you'd have to be on the boat to hear the banter, which uh, goes on between, uh, as you can imagine, people that have known each other from the, the uh, first grade on that. But uh, and and you were surprised you know, initially. You you took it, his uh, telling you that as as he was giving you a hard time or or joking about something. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I thought he was kidding, but the 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 tone of his voice um, totally gave it away as this this was real. And the uh, I have fact to that say, said, no, I have I, to no, say, I'm not if kidding. I, if I if I could. Uh, I told very, very, very few people about it, and it was I reserved that to a few close family members and friends like Darren that I knew me uh, well enough to know that I was not uh, prone to coming off with you know, wild stories like this. And, and those are the few people that I confided in, but it was, it would take me a considerable amount of time to, to ever come uh, public with it. But uh, yeah, those, those people that I felt really knew me that I could, uh, I, I could trust were not going to make fun of me. Uh, uh, yeah. I did approach them and Darren was one. And Well, we still make fun of you, but not about that. Well, yeah. <laughs> See, as you can tell, there's a little bit of the uh, banter that uh, just a, a small sample of the banter that goes on between <laughs> longtime friends. Uh, Shane, you had a question for Ron, I think. Indeed, I did. Uh, Ron, you you know you're you're uh, well known for the Sierra sounds and your work up in this, the high Sierras, uh, traveling remotely uh, by mule. And I was curious as uh, as to how how was this particular endeavor, Operation Sea Monkey, different? You know, it, you're going out remotely, in, you know, in in these areas of Canada, uh, and 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 you know, I know the obvious uh, differences, but how was how was this uh, how was Operation Sea Monkey unique and different uh, than what you've been uh, doing? You know, I mean, you're a world traveler, yes, but how was this particular operation different? What I found in, in my my uh, habituation, if you can, uh, these these creatures uh, need to understand or need to know, feel comfortable with you, and it's hard to do that when you jump from island. I don't know what we found out in this venture was that what islands to go to and what what could be for another trip would set us up for another time to go and spend some time at one spot. So they get uh, it's like these as a grizzly bear saw the cameras well. These things, see, you pull up in a boat that's 200 feet off the shoreline and, and come out with a dinghy and set up cameras. They, they witness that stuff if they're around. So uh, my, the difference in what I did, uh, most people know, is we had an habituation area in the Sierras, eight miles back in the wilderness, and that's where we went to. These things would come to us. 
once they get comfortable with you, they will interact if you do the right things. And that's what I found in my experiences. And uh, so the big difference is uh, completely different, actually. Uh, you're going from island to island, setting up cameras every night, and had night watches going on with thermal imaging, and uh, we all took shifts and and watched at nighttime. So it was it was a, a job too, but it was a fun job because you got. To, I thought I'd seen for sure uh, an image uh, when I was on duty, and come to find out it was a big crane uh, <laughs> that landed and took off. But uh, it looked like a man at first to me. I thought, sure, Todd, well, you got to check this out. <laughs> one of the, one of the uh, I, I have to say this this thing was uh, this whole this whole um, project was a, a a lesson on so many different angles. I can't even touch upon. But other than to say that there were mistakes made. We did after after action reviews of of the different tactics we used. And I think one of the things we came back with was that if we were to, you know, seriously uh, hope to get some sort of interaction with these animals, and let's be, you know, honest, you don't find Bigfoot. Bigfoot finds you. And I think think most of the team would agree with me. But it's going to take a concerted effort staying in one particular area for an extended period of time and letting them know that you're not passing through one day or a weekend or even a week, but you're going to be there for an extended period of time and that you've moved into their neighborhood and that they're going to come and, and, and check you out. And um, I view this, this particular uh, project as uh, more or less a, a a uh, learning lesson, a scouting mission. One of the things I think we can come back with, uh, come away with, is the fact that this area is prime, more so than the areas I've worked. Um, you know, Oregon and Southwest Washington. Uh, this area, I think, uh, lends itself um, to uh, a much greater possibility. <clears throat> Uh, of coming back with evidence because I don't know if I were if I were Bigfoot that's where I'd be because yeah, I have I mean, so many options I have mm-hmm. so many different places to go I've got so many options and um, so so this this I would chalk up you know I I know your listeners are like hearing lots of bear stories and funny anecdotes and things like that and they want to hear about Bigfoot and what did we find what we didn't find we've got time to talk about that. But I, I do want to I do want to touch upon that there were lessons learned. Uh, this was our first time in that area. We had a lot of equipment failures, uh, some of them completely unexpected, and uh, we had cameras shut down at the worst time. We had uh, radios shut down at the worst time. We had uh, the drone, uh, as it turned out, a uh, brand-new drone that I had purchased out of my own pocket before we left. Uh, we got it out of the box, and it was broken and, and unusable. unusable. Um, so, um, you know, it, 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 this was uh, round one, and I'm looking forward to round two. Well, yeah. I mean, speaking of round two, one of the the – unique things about this trip is you guys are going in and venturing into uh, virgin territory as far as 
going in with a purpose uh, as a researcher, there really is not anybody else doing this sort of endeavor or researching these areas. I mean, these are remote areas. People do tell by boat in there. But, I mean, as far as Sasquatch research or or, uh, habituation or anything of that nature, there's nothing like that going on really up there. So it's uh, really trying to pinpoint exactly where you should be, and I think that was a big part of this trip. Am I correct? Well, you you make a good point. People are passing through. People are passing through. The Johnson Strait and the Seymour Strait and some of these places, these are places where cruise ships are going through and where barges and, you know, logging operations are going on, but, but nobody is stopping to smell the roses. Nobody's stopping to take the time to um, pull over and really take a look and, and check these islands out. Uh, there's an amazing amount of wildlife, as, as we found out the hard way. But, again, lesson learned. And, and next time we go up there, and we will go back up there, I assure you there will be a there will be a Operation Sea Monkey too, and we will spend a little more time preparing for it. Three weeks, and we do what we did. It, it is absolutely amazing. Uh, six months, you know, look out. Yeah, well, that's yeah. One, and, of and the, imagine, one of the one of the quick, intriguing imagine, aspects. Uh, Go ahead, Shay. Yeah, I was going to say. I imagine real, that that. Um, those you brought along with you, Ron and Gunner and, and et cetera, uh, that um, you you oh, may be looking to expand um, who you invite. Uh, I would imagine most of the original crew that went on this trip will be invited back, uh, but you may be looking to expand, um, yeah, outwards. Kidding. <laughs> Kidding. Well, it's interesting. Um, one, of, one of the most compelling things, um, when Tom was, or when Todd was telling me about what he was proposing to do, was I always talk about we're we're looking for a needle in a haystack, and the needle's always moving. Well, here, you know, you go out into uh, the forests in Oregon and Washington and stuff, and where not only is the the uh, needle moving inside of the haystack. Um, they're they're chasing the protein source. They're chasing you know the deer and the elk and whatever other proteins they're eating in the woods. And what's uh, here here we had access to the areas where where uh, someone who's lived there uh, a vast majority of their life and and not only their own life but they're talking about the stories that that have been handed down generation to generation in the area. But we were going to review uh, fairly passively from a, you know, from a little bit of a distance um, the areas where they are set to feed. So uh, it, it, it was intriguing to me the idea that we could like pass through these areas or go into an area for a night and, and watch uh, the beaches and see if, what, what happened. And as Ron mentioned, uh, we stayed up uh, in shifts. We had uh, one a therm that we uh, was on loan from the Olympic Project. Thank you, Derek, and the Olympic Project. And uh, and we sat up on on the deck of the boat and and observed the the shores for all night long. And 
unfortunately, we did not, you know, come back with um, conclusive evidence of Bigfoot, which is always the, the holy grail of, of Bigfooting. But um, we learned, like I said, we learned a lot, and it was taught that, you know, that would we do things differently next time? I'm sure that we will. Oh, um, absolutely. That's you know, I I think that you have to be in an area for a little bit to kind of soak the area, and 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 I think we're dealing with something that is smart enough to know uh, what we are, and uh, of course, when new uh, humans come into the area, I'm sure they are they're on more high alert, just as we would if you know new, new people moved in. Uh, across the street or until or you get to know them. So or grizzlies per se, yeah. Or new grizzlies moved into the we're on the beach <laughs> with you. But but real but but seriously it's uh it it was a learning experience. There's always an orientation uh when you go into an area and this was really about um seeing the area through um Thomas Seawood's eyes and and getting the history and Exactly. Um, and visiting these different locations, and and now we have a, a better understanding of what you're dealing with. It's a uh, a huge area, and uh, but but relatively small. You know, uh, tr- it's not as big as the state of Oregon, so we're not you know we're not dealing with that large of a. <laughs> Excuse me, I had to push the the cough button, but uh, I'm gonna, no, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna have to cut off. You were swearing. Too. We know you were swearing. <laughs> well, at you, but okay. Well, Ron, thank you for coming on with us. We uh, look forward to uh, talking to you again soon, buddy. Okay, thank you. Thanks, right. Ron. Ron. Thanks, Ron. So. Uh, now we can talk about wrong. No, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was. I mean that. Well, I don't think anybody is going to have any misconceptions about how well this team uh, got along. Um, really, um, I I call it a dream team. Literally, I mean because it was so eclectic. I mean, you know, Tom Seawood especially coming with the Native American historical and cultural. Uh, well, Canada is America. I don't know if you knew that. It's part of North America. <laughs> anyway, just put that out there. But, um, you know, coming you guys- across with, with that Native perspective, um, some and the, the guy in and of himself is a, is a show. I mean, he, he you, know, you know, when he gets going and talks about history, he can talk for hours, and it's just – it's amazing. It's amazing to, uh, and I'm so glad there's somebody out there like him that has held on to these uh, um, cultural, you know, uh, this historical stuff that um, that that I what he would call concrete Indians have forgotten. But uh, Tom has taken a great deal of pride in his in his history and his his ancestry and. Uh, he, so he brings that aspect to it, you know. Ron, being an international explorer, going to Russia and Peru and Nepal, and you know, his work in the in the Sierras. I mean, this guy is uh, uh, 
tremendous asset, uh, and he's chased uh, enigmas of all different kinds, not just Bigfoot. You know, um, Tom Tom Steenberg, uh, published author of three books now, and um, uh, has researched not only British Columbia, but Alberta as well, and has done some amazing work. Uh, myself, who has really done nothing, but I, I'm here. But you only had your life changed by an encounter that you had well, in 93. I just did. I can't, <laughs> I can't take credit for, I guess if, if, there's, if, if, there's, if I've got one thing going for me, it's what something else did. 25 seconds of my life, an epiphany that changed a skeptic into an eyewitness, into a researcher. Um, I had nothing to do with it, and I can't take credit for it, and I won't. But I just will, I will say that I, I have come to a point in my research that um, I think it's important to, not for me, I, I know they exist, but, but for society in general to appreciate these things exist that means to to have them officially classified so that if need be and I'm not saying the need is there but if need be they be protected because uh, let's do the math we've got a very exotic animal the scene on very infrequently that appears to be elusive. It's not nocturnal, which makes it even more elusive. Um, that has a history that you know is extremely difficult to pin down. To me, that adds up to something that may be threatened, if not endangered. And there's a difference between technical extinction and um, um, the word escapes me. But the, the extinction doesn't have to. Technical extinction is the the last of a of a species die, and we've seen that in the past. Sadly, in the last 40 years, over a dozen species have have vanished. Known species have vanished. From from our planet, never never to ever come back. They're just gone, and that's a part of nature. I get that. Species have come into and out of existence long before humans were involved. But to the extent that we can play a part, to the extent that we can ensure that my grandchildren and my great grandchildren, however um, rare it may be might be able to see these things and to know they're still good, they're still alive, they're still healthy, uh, and their grandchildren, great-grandchildren, might be able to see them and appreciate them. I want to make sure that happens, and that's what the American Primary Conservancy is about. Well, Todd, one of the, to, to clarify, when you say protect them, some people don't get that you're talking about protecting their environment, that we're not going to physically... Right. Oh, you know, people say that... that they don't need our protection. They are perfectly capable of taking care of themselves, and and in their environment, I I agree. That's true. They you know they are uh, 
they're they're superior to us in their they are the in terms creature. of but they, right. So, but but you're not talking about protecting them from uh, us physically. You're talking about uh, protecting their environment, providing for you know uh, their existence and and how much area they they require. Uh, in order to to survive as a species, not as an individual being. Of course, of course, and, right. and I get that. I get that same argument, and I hear that all the time about, oh, they're perfectly fine. They've lived all these years. They exist today, so they're going to exist tomorrow. All I got to say about that is, if you made that same argument about the dinosaurs, uh, egg on your face. I mean, just because they exist today. You have no empirical evidence, no data to tell me how many there were 100 years ago versus how many there are today, and that's critical. You can't tell me what their natural resource needs in terms of food and habitat are specifically to make that argument. So to do so, to me, is a foolish romantic notion. And I dare say if we were talking about a a butterfly or a, or a rare frog that we rarely see, uh, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. And it, it just, it, it, I'm sorry, but I'm passionate about this. It angers me because I've seen them. I don't think they exist. I know they do. And I appreciate them in a way that I guess a lot of people who wish they exist or aren't sure they exist can't. But the truth of the matter is, until we know what they're Lifespan is their gestation span. How many were there? How many there were a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago? Today, we don't have a graph that shows us whether they're in decline or whether they're recovering. We don't know if there's specific enzymes in a specific plant that is in a specific area that we're tearing apart because we don't know. Um, it's foolish. It's irresponsible. And for me, I would rather err on the side of caution, again, based upon they're rarely seen, they're very elusive, I get all that, but to me that spells uh, just really a a more complicated picture Mm -hmm. because you have something that's rarely seen and doesn't want to be seen, and for whatever reason, avoids human contact at all time. We're not talking about blue jays and, you know, your gray jays, your camp robbers, your raccoons and things that are opportunists that come in and uh, continuously, you know, exploit um, humankind. These things avoid it. These things stay away. And probably for good reason. But I still think It's up to us, especially us serious researchers who appreciate, and I will just say the possibility they exist. Again, I know, but I appreciate, seriously appreciate the ones that that don't know, who are willing to put their necks on the line and say, hey, I'm serious enough about this that, I'm going to take a stance, and I'm going to stick my neck out and say these things exist. Um, hats off to them. Yeah. But yeah. 
it's it is irresponsible. It is foolhardy to suggest for whatever reason that the fact that these things exist today is proof enough that they'll exist tomorrow. I don't buy that. I can't do that. I won't do that. And unless somebody can lay down some data, some statistics, and say, hey, here's their gestation period, here's their resource needs, here's the population, what it was, what it is, here's the range they need, you know, all I can assume is that these things, um, again, let's err on the side of caution and step up and do what's right. Well, I got I got a question for, for Darren here since Darren's with us. Darren, what do you think? Do you think uh, you've been on, you went on, you know, you're obviously involved with the Operation Sea Monkey. Um, what are your thoughts about getting science involved? I mean, do you think this endeavor – this Operation Sea Monkey and future endeavors, do you think uh, it's the right approach? Do you think science, you know, given maybe possible findings, um, the seriousness of this endeavor may get science more involved? Uh, there's a lot of uh, individuals and researchers doing different things. Um, do you think it's important for science to be involved, one? And two, do you think uh, this particular endeavor that you were a part of uh, will maybe help uh, get science involved uh, and take the, take a another look at this. Well, the first question, um, yes, science does need to get involved. And as far as the uh, the expedition and future expeditions, uh, I fear that it all is going to hinge on procuring some form of physical evidence. And I don't even. I mean, I thought wow, wouldn't it be great if I could get one on video? But even that would not be incontrovertible. That could be, you know, said to be a hoax in one form or another. So we're going to need to find some physical evidence that's going to draw the, the classical scientists into the fray so that they can say, well, okay, I guess it does exist, and then now we'll prove what, what it is, not, not if it is. Right, right, yeah. It, it, you know, I mean, well, how how does for you, Darren and Todd, you can elaborate on this in a second here. But how does one do this? I mean, um, I really do believe in Operation Sea Monkey and its future endeavors. I, I've known Todd for a long time, and I love his ideas, his approach. He's oh, he's a outside thinker. He's thinking outside the box, doing a lot of unique things, and that's why I'm a big proponent of of what he's got going on here. Um, and uh, I think that he can come away with a lot of uh, great evidence. Uh, but what would it, you know, you've been, you know, semi-skeptical, you know, you've never had a sighting and whatnot. How does that fit into your mind, uh, and, you know, even with getting science involved? Uh, how, you know, obviously we need more evidence. I, is Operation Sea Monkey capable of doing this uh, or its future endeavors? Oh, I think it is um, based on, uh, you know, 30 or 40 years of research that uh, Tom Seaweed has done up there in terms of compiling all the different sightings by all the different tribes over this very vast area. Um, and, and then you combine that with the, the folklore that the, uh, the natives have regarding uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Um, 
I think that by going back up there with with the right equipment, some of the same equipment that we had, more equipment, more cameras, cameras that didn't spontaneously power down, that would be nice, um, <laughs> more SD cards. Um, and actually, you know, you talk about habituation and uh, scouting out an area based on Tom Seaweed's uh, uh, research and his own theories about the, the migratory patterns. He believes these creatures uh, move up and down in elevation, and they come down to the, yeah. uh, to the seashore to um, uh, take some of this, uh, you know, rich protein out of the, out of the low tide areas. Um, so if, if we can go back up there and spend enough time, um, and like Ron Moorhead says, you know, you're not going to, see them they're going to see you and and if they become comfortable enough then maybe they will come into the the sphere of influence that all the gear has and and maybe we can capture something on video or or get some kind of a sample so uh, i think that that area up there is probably based on everything i know and i've you know i've been kind of on the sidelines since todd had his sighting in the early 90s um i think that wow i tell skeptics my my friends that tease me for going on this expedition and well did you find any evidence of bigfoot i said no but i'll tell you what if you could live in the wilderness without uh, any need for you know fire or or housing or clothing you could disappear you could never be seen by humans again just up in that area of british columbia so i'm pretty well convinced that if, if bigfoot lives up there and he doesn't want to be seen, it's going to be real difficult to find him. But if he wants to be seen, you have to be there. Mm, yeah. Todd, Darren Todd. makes, a, Darren, Darren makes a, a great point, yeah. uh, uh, actually several. But, um, you know, Jimmy Hoffa's probably up there, I'm pretty sure. Um, no, seriously. <laughs> um, if, you want, if, if a person wanted to disappear, Darren has it right. A person could live up there in uh without ever being found again and have plenty of food and shelter. Uh, you know, the one of the things I learned about that area that surprised me, even though it's in a higher latitude, is that because of its orientation, uh, low elevation to the sea, that those islands rarely see snow uh, where we get snow in Portland. You know, and it's it's because of the temperatures that come off the the sea, the surrounding ocean, that keep those temperatures very moderate. Um, but uh, we, you know, as far as evidence is concerned, we did find some anecdotal evidence, nothing that would be inconclusive. But uh, and and we did split up into teams, so some teams were um, exposed to different different things. Um, I will say that when we, uh, on day two, when we went, uh, in to shore, uh, where we first set up our cameras and our seismic sensors that, um, we, within about a minute or two of being on shore, we heard a, a tremendous crash. Uh, it sounded like either a, like a log or a big boulder being slammed to the ground. Um, all of us heard it. The video, uh, which will come out in the documentary, will 
prove that, that we all stopped and we said, did you hear that? We all said yes. Um, and again, uh, it's inconclusive, but uh, something within a few hundred yards made a tremendous crash uh, that got our attention. Um, I will say that Victoria, who's been at, at that particular location where uh, Tom Seawood spent several months in a trailer, um, she had been there before and she became extremely uneasy. Uh, I don't know whether she was more sensitive to things than, than we were, but she just wanted off that island immediately. And it took everything we could to convince her to, to just stay with us. Um, there was an anomaly I will talk about, um, and I'm not in the woo-woo, woo-woo crowd, but I will say this. Um, when we reviewed the tape, when we got back to the boat, uh, she was filming um, about halfway through the film, there was a audible anomaly. Call it an audio anomaly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's all I can say. I mean, it was weird. It just, um, it uh, came on, it was picked up by the camera. It uh, uh, was there in the background, if you will. And it was before I turned the seismic sensors on. Some people speculate, well, you just turned on that transmitter. Maybe that's what did it. But you can see on the film, it started before I ever switched the transmitter on. And at the same time, Ron tried to radio the boat, which was only a couple hundred meters away on a VHF radio, and he could not make radio communication. Um, Again, I'm not in that woo-woo crowd. I'm just saying that, there were some things that happened, some equipment failures, and, um, you know, the drone included that it's hard to, it's hard to explain. And uh, I don't know. I, I, again, this trip was a scouting mission. The anecdotal evidence, we did find some potential foot tracks, but they weren't clear enough to cast. We found uh, branches broken off at the 10 to 12-foot elevation, not higher than 12 foot, not lower than 8 feet or 10 feet, that seemed to exclude bear. Uh, When we were at Village Island, Darren can confirm this, uh, we, when we got on Village Island, that was a pretty uh, amazing event. Um, when we first got there, Tom Seawood said, hey, uh, i got to talk to my ancestors, and you cannot film this. And what he did was bring some tobacco, and he offered it up in four different directions uh, before he even spoke to them. And he said, and spoke clearly, to his ancestors that he knew that died on that island. He said, we're here, we're a group of people, and he went on to describe what we were doing. He said, we are bringing some equipment you might not understand, but know that it's good, and uh, we're going to leave here shortly, and 
that was just an amazing, a really a, a, an amazing moment to be a part of, and I feel honored to that he included us. Um, we walked through the old village, which was abandoned back in the 1960s by his people uh, for economical reasons, and um, it was done with the utmost respect for those who had been there before. The buildings that still stood were overgrown with vegetation. Uh, there, we, we found, um, you know, there were still some salmon berries and blackberries that had yet to fall off the vine. There were pathways, tunnels, really, where you can see where the bear went through, but then there were these um, mowed down areas. Uh, I don't know how else to explain it. It almost looked like he drove a car through the blackberries and through the salmon berries. And Tom would say, these tunnels you see, these are the ones the bears make. They plow through this stuff and, and leave a tunnel. But these areas that are just plowed wide open, that go, I mean, literally just crushed everything in its path, these are the Bigfoot. Uh, these abandoned villages also had abandoned fruit orchards. There were pears and apples and plums that still grow there, wild. And you can tell that up to the 8 to 10 foot level, the bears have taken advantage of that. Um, and he said it's only a matter of time before the Bigfoot comes in and you'll find, you know, you can come back here a week later and all those high branches, those ones, you know, 10, 12 feet and up are just snapped off and that the Bigfoot's in there. Well, interestingly enough, on our way back through there, uh, we had gone north of there and we're coming back. Tom had spotted five bear on the beach that we had just been on just below the village. And his comment was, that's not right. He said, those bear should be up in those orchards eating all that fresh fruit. This is, you know, it's September, you know, beginning of October. This is what all the fruit is coming into ripeness. He says the fact those bears are down on that beach means there's something up in those orchards that is pushing them back on the beach. So I don't know. I don't know. We we heard noises. We, we, we saw some tracks. We saw branch breaks. We, you know, all of it admittedly anecdotal and inconclusive, and and I'll admit to that. But when you talk about success, and, and people have said, do you, do you believe your expedition, expedition was a success? To me, success comes in a number of different forms. Uh, did we get the Holy Grail? No. Uh, but I think we, we came into this with our eyes wide open and, and realistically knowing that our chances of getting that Holy Grail were probably one in a hundred. And to find some definitive evidence was maybe one in ten. Um, but what we came back with is uh, an appreciation for that area and uh, and its culture and its its history. And uh, I, I I can't wait to get back up there. And the sooner we can, the better. 
Yeah, Todd, you know what? I'd like to talk a little bit about the seismic sensors because that's pretty unique, and we really haven't touched upon the uniqueness of the seismic sen sensors that you are utilizing in the field. Uh, I don't know of many. I know of maybe one uh, in my head I can think of that have utilized this equipment before, but you truly are a pioneer with the seismic sensors. Uh, what's behind that, and, and what do you hope to gain from using this sort of uh, equipment? Well, the seismic sensors is, is a technology that really goes back almost to the Vietnam era, um, and they are available uh, to the public. Uh, they're used primarily with the military and law enforcement, but what they do is that you have this specialized equipment, and I've, I've dealt with a couple different versions of it, but they detect vibration in the ground, and they send a silent signal to a receiver that can uh, then each one of these sensors have their own unique signal. So I had a kit, I have a kit of four of them. They each have a, a specific signal they put out. And I've used them many times uh, going back uh, uh, 20 years, but uh, we use them in the expedition that uh, it was called Operation Enticed Contact 2 that Peter Byrne and Ron Moorhead were on in 1998 on the southern flanks of Mount uh, well, Saddle Mountain. At the same time, I was able to procure a set of eight from the what they called NASI, the North American Science Institute, a slightly different variation, but uh, they are critical um, I think as a tool to know that you've got activity in an area uh, and as long as you pinpoint these you know the location of these sensors on your on your map in your surrounding area from your base camp or in this case the mothership that we use um, you can tell that there's something some activity going on in that area that's causing the, the ground to vibrate. And uh, they're, they're, they're so sen sensitive that in most cases I rarely see there's a, the ones I have have a five sensitivity level setting and I've, I've rarely used them above three because even the raindrops, if you get a good rainstorm in there, just the, 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 vibration of the rain hitting the ground will set them off at level three. So, and we had some false signals initially. Um, we found that even some, in in some cases, a, a passing boat with a diesel engine cutting through the sound was the cavitation of the propellers was setting off these sensors at three. So we ultimately set it back to one to try to eliminate any false signals. But uh, these things are invaluable. Um, yeah, we are one of few people that use them. But, uh, I mean, for a hunter, uh, it's almost like cheating. I mean, uh, if you set them, and what we did is we set them by our cameras. So that if we had something trigger them, we would train those uh, uh, clear goggles in that direction and look for a heat signature. Um, 
you have to appreciate the fact that of the five different islands we visited in in the course of that week, the boat was anchored perhaps a hundred meters offshore, and that put us within range to where, like Ron had talked about, or, or Gunner, that we took shifts. I mean, I stayed up till two in the morning. Gunner took it from two to four, and Ron took it from four to six, and. Tom took it from six to eight, you know. The the interesting thing about FLIR is it doesn't matter whether it's day or night. It's looking for heat signatures. And if anybody, and I've heard it from a couple of different people, well, you, you know, must have been nice to have a vacation up there paid by other people. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll have to, I have to say, I and Gunnar spent five nights, six nights really, sleeping on a couch and getting up <laughs> in the middle of the night uh, getting Not up the in the middle coast. of the night, having, having no, no, thank you, <laughs> having 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 somebody roust you at two in the morning or four in the morning and saying it's your turn, go up on deck. Mm-hmm. It was it, it was in the mid sixties during the day, but it was in the in the forties at night. And you bundle up, you go up on deck, and you sit there with the with the flare, and you scan the shoreline over and over and over again, looking for heat signatures. Um, it was no vacation, I can assure you. Yeah, definitely uh, definitely oh. did not sound like a vacation to me. Uh, though, uh, I will say that it's what uh, I know you guys passionately and myself passionately love to do. So I won't call it a vacation. Um, I'll call it more than a hobby. Uh, but something that we love to do and you guys love to do and – uh, it definitely was no vacation. You're taking time off work, time away from your loved ones, but engaging in, in something you're passionate about. So it's not uh, definitely not a vacation because I, I know you, Todd, and, and, and some of the others involved, Steenberg and whatnot, and, and Ron Morgan, uh, very adamant about uh, uh, you know using your time and using it wisely, and that get you know that means uh, getting up at all hours and being vigilant and uh, utilizing the equipment you have and getting out there. I don't know uh, of many. There, there are others, but there, you guys really, truly are um, very adamant about making this a serious, serious endeavor, and you did that. And I'm really looking forward uh, to what's down the pike here, what's down the road. Uh, I can only imagine what's going through your head, Todd, um, uh, from this particular trip, what you're going to bring down the road here, in, you know, uh, what's going to be laid out before you. Well, I do think this was somewhat pioneering in in so much as the pact we took. Uh, I think it's a very uh, pragmatic way to uh, approach this subject. Um, getting out there by getting out into an area where you really need a boat to access these remote islands, and specifically this time of year where... Tom Seawood said, this is not only where our people come down to, to take advantage of these tides and these these clam beds, but Sasquatch as well, um, is something nobody's done. And so we're going to continue to try to exploit uh, new methods, new uh, strategies to try to uh, 
answer this question that's on everybody's mind, you know. Mm-hmm. What are these? Uh, where are they? When are they there? And try to exploit that. And uh, I think if we had it to do all over again, uh, and I think everybody on the team would agree that what we need to do is not hit five islands in five nights, but to hit an island for five nights and to maybe have a little larger team, perhaps a bigger boat, place teams on an island for an extended period of time, uh, all within communication range, have the mothership out there to support us in terms of uh, uh, of uh, food and, and, and uh, equipment and being able to recharge our batteries and that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, I see this as a stepping stone to future um, uh, expeditions. Uh, I've talked to Diane about this. I think what we want to do once I do retire is move our boat up into that area permanently. And by doing so, we don't have to depend on anybody else for necessarily – uh, transportation that will have our boat there available and maybe a second boat um, a backup boat uh, but to be able to support a mission like this and uh, I think if we stay in a particular area for an extended period of time that these teams might come back with uh, some better evidence yeah yeah the, the clan <clears throat> dead the clam bed thing is very interesting to me because the uh, with these clams, um, it sounds like they're so abundant. We have reports here on the Pacific Northwest, uh, and I'm sure you're well aware of them, Todd, where even it goes far back as the Native Americans in the early days reporting of Sasquatch eating crawdads and whatnot and clams. Um, we do have an abundance here, but I think the abundance may be even greater in some of these other areas, and that gives credence to the theory of uh, Sasquatch coming down periodically from a certain, you know, elevation to a, a lower elevation and, and preying on these clams. Uh, that's 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 information and stuff that I find unique and, and compelling. Well, certainly they exploit these areas. I mean, these 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 opportunities come in cycles. I mean, don't think for a minute that a Bigfoot, as well as bear and other animals, don't realize that. We have a summer and winter steelhead run. We have a fall and spring Chinook run. Uh, they know when the crawdads are abundant. Uh, I can tell you stories of uh, uh, an individual who watched them uh, from a distance rolling over rocks and and eating crawdads. Uh, they found the entire shoreline littered with crawdad shells after this creature left. Um and the same thing I think applies to these these bivalves. I think they're they're going down in cycles, and I think it's important to recognize those cycles and to uh, know that they exploit them, and that we need to be there when they're there. And that's just one more clue to the puzzle. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And that, make, that gives really credence to going out to these areas, uh, especially you know up there in Canada and British Columbia, those areas. It gives a lot of credence to uh, the fact that, like I said earlier in the show, <clears throat> really nobody's out there researching uh, full-time. Nobody's out there doing this sort of stuff. 
Um, and kudos to you for, you know, getting uh, a fantastic uh, group together and in, in indulging in skepticism and bringing a skeptic along with you. Uh, that's important. Um, but, you know, down the road, Todd, what, what are your, what are your, having come back from this expedition, how, how are you going to approach it differently? We talked about this briefly, but how are you going to approach it differently? And are you, I mean, how much funding are you going to need to, to make this happen? Well, I, I, I would say if I had it to do all over again, I mean, bear in mind, we put this thing together in three weeks flat. And the, no kidding. And 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 the the uh, amazing thing was the amount of support that we were able to raise in that short period of time. Now imagine if we start a campaign, say in January, and say, look, we're going up there this summer. Uh, we're going to hit this area again with a larger crew and with the intent of staying long-term, um, what kind of money we might be able to raise. And it's, it's not all about money. I mean, yeah, we raised $5,000. Um, the fact of the matter is we spent probably $7,000. I mean, everybody contributed out of their own pocket on this as well. It was nice to have that uh, support. But to do this on a larger scale, um, we're going to need to um, put this out with a lot more advance notice in three weeks. I mean, I look at the possibility of getting sponsorship, for instance, from CLEAR. Um, we approached a number of different corporations prior to this, but with such short notice, it was it was almost impossible to uh, to get that kind of support because, I mean, these these corporations have to have board meetings. They have to, uh, you know, and they may only convene once a month, and they have to say, hey, look, we've got this project and we need uh, uh, consensus uh, as to whether to support it or not. Um so I think if we had it to do all over again, we would start it earlier, obviously. Uh, look for sponsorship uh, as well as donors and uh, come at this um, with with a, uh, a little more time to prepare. And I think we could uh, pull off something that's uh, on a much grander scale. And, uh, and I think that's what it's going to take. But uh, I, I do completely... Uh, support this uh, approach and you know like I say so much to the fact that I'm willing to, to relocate uh, once I retire re- relocate my, my my vessel up there uh, permanently uh, to support such uh, future expeditions but in the meantime I would like to try to get this started earlier and uh and bring in some more researchers. I'd like to see maybe a, a ten-man team up there, you know, where we can put five people on one island, five people on another island, and leave them there for a week or better. And uh, um, you know, taking into account uh, the other wildlife that uh, we're sharing the area with, and being prepared for that as well. 
Um, but uh, it, it was a great learning curve for us. Um, I, I think we walked away with uh, a laundry list of things we would do differently. And uh, I, I, I think with enough advance notice, we could do this uh, on a much grander scale and, and get much much more success. Yeah, yeah, def- definitely. I, I would assume so. Um, I mean, upwards and onwards, and everything's a learning curve. You know, and speaking of learning curves, uh, I got a question for you. It, you know, with the trail cameras, you guys had barely placed those things in the scheme of things, and they were ripped down. I mean, uh, grizzlies had, and even wolves had approached your trail cams. Um, what going forward? How would you um, how would you go about placing those trail cams down the down the road here? I mean, that's that. You know, <laughs> Todd, you I and I one, both, yeah. we we place trail <laughs> cameras out there in in, in you know areas, and um, <clears throat> we do have sometimes things mess with them. But, I mean, these were just ripped off. <laughs> so how would you go about uh, uh, approaching that particular subject? Well, I, uh, well, well I, I would suggest you don't do it under under duress because you're really looking at <laughs> <laughs> you're really looking at where's the closest tree to attach. And it was a we did pick a good area that had we it, there was traffic going through there was there was a lot of grizzly prints. And Thomas Steinberg had seen wolf prints going through there as well, so we got exactly what what we had evidence of going through the area. Um, I, I, to me, I wondered what you know if we had an opportunity to go up the river and place some trail cams, what what uh, we might get in the long term, because um, that was a very active uh, uh, wildlife area. So go ahead, Todd. Well. Um... I do think it was interesting. Uh, one of the things that jumped out at me was the fact that these animals recognize those cameras. Now, contrary to what a lot of people say is that Bigfoot recognizes these cameras and for whatever reason avoids them, in this particular case, we had animals that recognized them as something that was out of place. Maybe they smelled uh, our scent on those cameras. I don't know. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, they came and they investigated them, and in in one case, literally played with one until they tore it down. And uh, I would give uh, anything to have a Sasquatch do the same thing because if they do, then it's it, you know game over or perhaps game on. But uh, I we saw no indication that these animals seem to be intimidated by in any way, shape, or form by the fact the cameras are there. They were just curious, and they acted on that curiosity, and they came in and investigated them. Uh, to do it over again, maybe uh, time uh, allowing, uh, maybe put them at a little bit higher um, location. point Or well, maybe something... descent them, you know, maybe not, and descent them. Just take, take pro- more steps to eliminate the human element, but uh, well, in that this was case, definitely not the, an option. <laughs> the, yeah. That was not an option. But I mean, in this case, in this case, I mean, let's be, let's be honest. Uh, if, if it was human scent that attracted him, then, mm-hmm. then, um, mission accomplished. Uh, what I would suggest is that if, you know, given time, 
that we perhaps bait the area in front of the camera, uh, in front of the cameras with uh, some sort of seafood or cockles or shells or whatever. Tom, yeah, we could stake him out, <laughs> flatter him with bacon grease or whatever, or, right. or Ron, Ron stuck up to his knees uh, in mud. We could just, you know, a little but, bit of no, planning with, for that to happen. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean seriously, um mm-hmm. um the I think the object is to get to to uh do something to attract these animals to the to the cameras to where we can get those pictures we need. And again, to be quite honest and, and I think you would agree that pictures alone are not going to um necessarily be sufficient to prove their existence it may help us in terms of research and knowing that we're on the right track but Darren made a great point you know he says you know we can get that you know holy grail footage but due to technology today and CGI and Photoshop and everything else that's out there uh, pictures alone may not may not do it yeah it's going to be Derek, I, I do have a question for you. How, when, if you have the original, um, like device that that a uh, or medium that that uh, a picture was taken, how easy is it to determine whether or not something's been photoshopped or or tampered with? Can you actually tell that by looking at the the source? Yeah, there are there are actually uh, forensic uh, photography and video specialists that can go into the single pixel level and uh, look at an image. And it, at, that, at that level, it is extremely difficult to make a perfect fake where you can fake out these guys. So um, right. it, it, it could be done, but um, highly unlikely, even if you have the, uh, the source footage to, to, to pull off a, a perfect hoax. And it'd be very no, difficult I mean, to prove it. Yeah, right. So, so if you keep, and if you had multiple um, devices that you caught this image on, I mean, we, I, I sent out before we went out the the footage from the BBC show that showed the gorillas up in in the tree sleeping, and you could see, you know, the hair detail. You could tell what it was that you were looking at. There was there was no yeah. doubt. So, I mean, and that's that's one of the the uh, challenges is to to have the best possible uh, equipment for capturing um, an image. You know, if we're if you're doing nighttime stuff, um, you're still gonna uh, and and we've seen it on on uh, on trail cam or on uh, thermal imaging stuff looks very blobbish on the low end of equipment. The the uh, stuff that the PBC using obviously is high end and and they were fairly close to their subjects. But uh, that's that's one of the challenges is getting something that good um, and getting uh, – and, and being – if you have the source being willing to have that, that uh, initial media scrutinized to, to prove yes. that it wasn't, and I think that's an advantage that we have because we would be providing that to – we would – I mean, to prove if you get a very compelling 
uh, video or and – and both these cameras were set up on video. So uh, we'd have the option of, of uh, presenting it and have it forensically reviewed. And um, it, and then, you, you know, you're 99.9% whatever that proves that it, it is – not been tampered with, so right, right. There is that, yeah. But, but there is uh, that. Let me mention option. this real quick. Is that I, I really, I, I get so Twitter pated. I get a, a, a little angry when people don't realize that, at least from my perspective, and I could be wrong, but it seems that so many people assume that we're dealing with a, a creature or an entity that exist that there's there's a lot of them i just don't i'm not in that realm i think that we're dealing with a very unique and um very scarce creature uh animal um that it's 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 just that hard to find solid evidence um i think what was what todd is in the gang are doing here with operation sea monkey is is unique and right on par they're going to areas where um most people don't travel. Uh, there aren't researchers, uh, you know, kind of doing the, the Jane Goodall sort of thing to to a certain extent. I don't think we're dealing with a, a, a creature um, that there there's so many of them that it's just you walk out your back door and you take a picture, and there it is. Right. We're dealing with something <laughs> right. that is very smart, very unique, and rare. I mean, I, that's just my approach, my thought process, and it makes it that, that your job uh, as a researcher, as whatever, an investigator, a ske- you know, uh, it just makes it that much more difficult. But it, the, there are places you can go. I fully believe this, uh, given the mm-hmm. time frame, given the time you spend in these areas, that you can gain evidence and, and whatnot. Uh, and that's just a frustration of mine. I'm sure I, you know, maybe uh, some of you guys feel the same frustrations. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a challenge that the people you know the question why don't we have a body why don't we have the bones why don't we have the because people have not gone out and you, those are armchair people that that have never looked at they probably have never stepped out in the woods because if you go out in areas like where the where we went you see how fast um of the wilderness and this is basically almost untouched wilderness out there that that uh, isn't frequented by people, and and has a, the wildness to it that that uh, um, would provide habitat for for something like a Bigfoot, Sasquatch, you know. Well, um, let's, let's not let's not kid ourselves. The you know nature takes its course, and nature is a great recycler, you know, mm-hmm. and and it's. It's really amazing if you've ever seen a time-lapse footage on a uh, a deer or an elk carcass over a period of time. There right. are so many scavengers, let alone predators. There are scavengers in the form of other carnivores as well as birds, and you got to you got to take into account bacteria and and uh, the weather and parasites that in very short order will render a carcass uh, basically gone in very short right. order. I can right. I can personally attest to the time I shot an elk in the Saddle Mountain area and 
had it not been for uh, a snowstorm that was moving in, I would have uh, pulled the entire carcass out and rendered it uh, normally. But I field dressed it. I took uh, the shoulders and the and the rumps and the back strap and left a, a fairly sizable portion of this elk where it laid. And I came back to that very same spot within three weeks. And the only way you would know there was any animal ever there was there was about a one square foot patch of hide that was hung up in some uh, salmonberry brambles. Otherwise, there were no bones. There was there was no clue whatsoever that an animal had ever died there. And I, I can't help but think that uh, any animal, these animals included, aren't subject to the same sort of recycling process. Right, and that's that's something that was killed un, that died an unnatural death. Uh, you know, you talk about uh, animals in the woods. They they when they know that they're sick, they they go hole up somewhere, and uh, I'm sure that Bigfoot is the same way. They you know they they go to protect themselves from other predators and stuff. And, and so, so they're not, they don't die out in the middle of a field generally. You know, they die, they die hidden somewhere. So, yeah, good point. Good point. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, uh, and, and I think Shane hit it. It's when it, it comes down to odds and when it's right. very rare to find the carcass of a bear that's died of natural causes, and by natural causes, I mean three things, uh, age, uh, injury, or illness, that there comes a time, even with apex predators, that they face their mortality for the first time in their lives. They're not, they're not worried about, you know, with an apex predator, you're not worried about being subjected as game, per se, to another animal. But there is that time where they realize that for whatever reason of the three I mentioned, that you can no longer support yourself. You can no longer stay with the, the clan, the herd, the whatever, that, right. you, that, that your time is coming. And just like I think a human would if they were found themselves in a survival mode, like that, that you are going to try to remove yourself to an area where you can die in relative peace, uh, away from scavengers and predators, and and try to uh, you know secrete yourself uh, to such a place that when that end comes, that it hopefully comes in a in a very natural way, and and those places are very um, remote. Those places are going to be hard to find. And again, over time, other scavengers, whether bacteria, parasites, uh, are, are going to move in and, and recycle you. Right. It happens. Well, it gentlemen, I, we are just about out of time. So Todd Neese and Darren O'Brien, uh, along with Shane, I thank you gentlemen for joining us today. And applaud your efforts in in uh, conducting uh, a field invest a real like field investigation. You know this was an expedition, so um, I look forward to uh, 
participating and uh, sharing more of that time out there with you guys in the future. Yeah, let's well, do I it again. We, I, I hope what we've done is bring a sense of legitimacy to the the research and and uh, in time, uh, given uh, a little more time to prepare, that we can uh, uh, do it even more so. Um, uh, I will say that uh, I have have been uh, I, I put out today a part one of uh, a series of of uh, uh, exposés on what we've done. Uh, I'll put out another tomorrow, and I, ultimately I plan to write a book. Uh, there's a documentary in the works that will come out in time, and uh, I hope your Thank listeners you, will. Be looking, yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, I, I think uh, as that happens, uh, people will appreciate what we did, and and it it uh, it it will be historic. Uh, what we did was uh, original, and I think epic. And uh, if I can put a little shout out to our website, I I would just like to say. Um, we will be putting this on our website. That's AmericanPrimate.org. If uh, your listeners would like to learn more about it, uh, we will be updating that site as time allows. And uh, thank you for this opportunity, Gunnar and Shane, uh, to uh, talk about this and uh, and for all your support. Well, I, I appreciate you guys coming on. It was again, I was. Uh, honored to be included in the group of people that on the uh, inaugural Operation Sea Monkey with more to come. So, Darren, any last words before we sign off? Well, I've got about uh, 60 gigabytes of footage that I'm currently going through. Uh, We (laughs) still have to get uh, tapes from Ron. So, um, yeah, that, that documentary, it's, uh, it's a little ways off, but uh, we'll be putting something together here shortly. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody, and Monster X listeners for uh, joining us this evening. We'll be back next Sunday with another episode of Monster X Radio. Good night. Um.